Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Roisin Engel. What have you been at this week? Well, I have to say, first of all, that I went to a brilliant play last night called Children in the Gate Theatre. And I would urge people, those of you who love theatre and those of you who think, oh, I don't really like theatre, to go to this because it was just a wonderful night of entertainment. And I tell you that the legends that are Ger Ryan, Mary Mullen and Sean McGinley, just three people on stage... And I won't even say what it's about because I didn't know. If very unusually, I sat down at the gate last night and I didn't have a clue what this play it's was grim. about. Well, it's it's funny, Cathy, actually. It's funny. Grimly but it's funny. got darkness in it. And these three flipping people at the top of their game are just amazing. And there's no interval, which we like. Oh, we do yeah. like that. We're out of there by like, yes. you know, 20 past nine. Oh, you can perfect. have a nice drink afterwards. And it's directed by Una Murphy, who is just a, such a talented young woman. And she put it all together. And I just felt like, and a few people said this, I could hear them afterwards. It's just like a proper play. And I know that doesn't, that's not kind of any disrespect to a lot of these really innovative, you know, experimental things that we're seeing lately. And they're great. I but hope it's, not. But it, no, of course not, because I love a bit of all that. But I also liked going to what you would just see as a traditional play that was also very original and very kind of funny and just left you kind of with lots of things to think about. And then these performances, I have to particularly single out Mary Mullen. She's just unbelievable as a performer so Great there's my women. big rave review for, for that children and you also hit a very interesting event in the Royal College of Surgeons yeah I was delighted to be asked to do this actually um the Royal College of Surgeons Ireland has joined up with the Women on Walls project, which has been driven by Accenture, which you might remember they, they started it with the Royal Irish Academy. And the idea being that everywhere you go in these, you know, austere and amazing bastions of um, excellence, there's only men on the walls. And how can sort of young women in those uh, places kind of, you know, have people to, to inspire? It's, it's like as if there wasn't any women who did great things. There was, but they're just not represented on the walls. So that's the idea of the project. And now in this beautiful boardroom in the Royal College of Surgeons Ireland there are eight stunning portraits. Are they women we've heard of before? You might have heard of some of them but you probably won't but the thing is they've done just amazing things in their fields in various ways and I'm going to just can I just read tell you about them and urge everyone because they're going to be letting, opening it to the public and you can go into this room which also is an exam hall so I just love the idea of these young students doing their exams, looking up at these women on the walls. And it's and also a great building band yeah. in the city centre. Uh, it's, and it's a beautiful yes. building and I've so never been in there. Do it. But I went yes. in the, the week before and there was only men on the walls, you know, and you're kind of looking around and then now it is just a different energy in that space and it's wonderful. Okay, tell so us about a few of them. I'll tell you about, well, there's only maybe. eight. Let me tell you about all of them. I'll tell you very quickly. Yeah, because they're, they're really brilliant women. I can't leave eight any out. Them. No, come on. 
All right, very okay. quickly. So the first one is Dr. Marbra Maeve Stokes, a paediatrician and pioneering disability campaigner. And her portrait was done by a County Tyrone woman called Catherine Craney. Then Enda Griffin was the artist for her sister, Dr. Maura Lynch, who was an incredible woman who went back to study to train as a sur- surgeon at the age of 47 because she was working in Angola and she got very involved in uh, women who had fistulas, you know, who were incontinent. And she did more than a thousand operations helping those women and she's incredible. That's um, Dr. Mora. Then Mick O'Dee, who you might know of the portrait artist, amazing man. He did Dr. Mary, Mary Somerville Parker Strangman, who was a suffragette, the first female counsellor in Waterford and also a doctor. And then he also did Dr. Emily Winifred Dixon, who uh, is another incredible woman. And uh, she was from County Tyrone and she was the first woman to be appointed an examiner in Ireland or Britain and it caused huge uproar at the time and a big petition to the RCSI but the the petition was ignored and she was allowed to carry on. So that was in um, 1887 she began her studies so she's one of the she's really one of the pioneering women in that institution. She couldn't get into Trinity because she was a woman she was refused a post in the Rotunda because she was a woman but she didn't let any of it stop her and actually I found a really interesting bit of trivia about her she ended up being actually the grandmother to Alan Clark, the late MP. Yeah, her daughter went over to England, married Lord Clark, and they had Alan Clark. Anyway, that's political that's diaries ever. There, exactly. Then um, Molly Judd was the youngest artist. She is really something. I mean, everybody has to go in and see these paintings. She painted Mary Josephine Hannon, who was the very first woman to train and qualify from the RCSI back in 1866. She was a champion of women's rights as well, worked all over the world. And also Dr. Victoria Coffey, who was one of the first female paediatricians. And she did loads of uh, pioneer research into sudden infant death syndrome. So she was really interested in those sort of things that happened at birth and she did stuff that no one else had done. And I think that's a thread with all these women that as well as obviously being high achievers and what they were doing, there was a real commitment and compassion to the care and to sort of change. Social activism Exactly. That's running through them in a really big way. And the final portrait then is um, done by the oldest artist, actually, and she's a, a Mayo woman called Benita Stoney. And she she painted Dr. Margaret Pearl Dunleavy, so she was better known as Pearl. She was an epidemiologist whose championing of immunisation sort of eradicated TB in Ireland. And so the, her portrait is brilliant because she's um, in front of this tenement in the inner city Dublin and around her are all these children and, and there's a, ba- a woman with a baby in her arms getting immunised out in the street because that's sort of, you just got, went wherever the people were. But I'm telling you, it's just gorgeous to go and see I them. I don't want to be bleak about this, but imagine if she came back now and saw the anti-vaxxers. Well, I don't think, um, I yeah. don't think that Pearl would be very impressed with that. But She would not. But just to say a big, um, you know, big up to Accenture, to the RCSI because uh, there's a great woman in there um, Avril who is the head of diversity and inclusion and when you think the room that we did the event in uh, there's a balcony at the back of the room and that's where the wives of all the fellows of the surgeons had all to go the when there was any men. of these dinners the women weren't allowed on the main room they had to go up in the balcony so to be there for this event and, and you know there's a plaque there that marks that the only reason that changed interestingly was because in 1984 Mary O'Rourke was invited to go to an event in the RCSI and she refused to go because she said, no, not while that rule's in place and they, they got rid of it. Then. Were they going to make her sit in the gallery? Well, no, they weren't going to make her sit. I think they were going to allow her, but there was the fact that, that most people had to go up there. So, God, we yeah. have come a so long way. So she said no. So, I feel, you know, another great thing yeah. about Mary O'Rourke, we forget all the good Mary things O'Rourke that she, she is did. a great woman. She is. And was. So I'm sorry to go on about it, but it is an amazing thing. And that everyone was to fascinating. <laughs> okay. Great women. A bit of a whistle and especially, stop to her. <laughs> especially. 
<laughs> Coming up to International Women's Day, terribly important that I we hear about so. all these women. But they're gorgeous paintings as well as anything else. The colour and the richness and the vibrancy. Everybody and they just tip come in alive. there. It's on, it's on Stephen's Green and there's no excuse for not tipping in. Tip and in. Roshan I has never, made it sound would never tell anyone to tip in magnetic. anywhere. Where does that come from? I don't in? know. Maybe Art Clock. I don't know. <laughs> Now, another thing that I thought was fascinating this week, and it's another corporate effort, actually. You've mentioned Accenture already, um, which is actually has, has the imprimatur of women's aid. Um, and it's Vodafone Ireland, which has announced a new policy that supports employees who've experienced domestic violence or abuse. I know, isn't that amazing? Isn't, isn't it quite something? It provides 10 days additional leave, specialist counselling, management training and emergency financial assistance, such as help opening a new bank account and salary advances. Now, that to me is something quite extraordinary for yeah. a company to and get can you imagine for, for somebody in a company like that who is experiencing all of those things and then knows that they can go to their employer and say, look, I'm needing a bit of help. And even things like changing your bank account or just getting practical help like that, that's what they're, they're going to do as well. They did a study a very interesting study of 4,712 men and women in employment across nine countries and loads of industries. And of the 500 men and women who participated in Ireland, the survey found that 31% had experienced some form of domestic abuse. And of those, 63% had experienced psychological abuse and control and 47% physical violence. Um, so they have all the figures to back it up. I mean, this is that's, something that's, that's going really to be really valuable of all the people for people. participating in the survey. It's just amazing. Um, Vodafone is going to launch an app in Ireland to connect victims of domestic violence or abuse to advice and support centres here. And just to say, the Women's um, Women's Aid have said about it, the new Vodafone domestic violence policy is remarkably comprehensive and innovative and we would really encourage other employers in Ireland to follow their lead. Yeah. So I must say the news is very good this week. It's it's excellent. Yes. We're very happy. And Coming that's good up to for International Women's Day. And let's just tell them. everyone we'll be doing our, uh, you'll be doing a panel in uh, the Accenture event um, tomorrow morning. And you'll be doing an homage to the uh, Women's Podcast. Yes, but we'll record, we'll record your event and we'll bring that to listeners as well in the future. Yes, it's going to be fascinating. And we'll include a woman called Brenda Romero. I don't know the first thing about <laughs> game design, but this woman is actually a legend. She's been out since 1981 or something. And she is the last woman standing from that era because there were so few of them anyway. So I'm really looking forward so to hearing So it's basically her. almost science fiction-y what you're doing. It's really looking at the future and what's coming down the tracks. And I won't and have the faintest will. idea what I'm looking at or talking <laughs> about. Will. But there are people there who really <laughs> will know. So this will be worth hearing, I can tell you. If you're know, terrified of artificial intelligence, there's something actually much more joyful about this approach to it, which I think people will find very interesting. And it's going to be all about inclusivity and equality. Great. And we should wish all our listeners a happy International Women's Day from everyone here. We on the certainly podcast. should. And yeah. you are actually going to do something very interesting immediately after this chat. You're talking to a woman, a journalist and author called Lynn Enright, who's written an excellent book, which actually has a picture of a vagina on the front it of it, which lovely, I didn't quite get until I looked more picture. closely. Yeah, it's we don't often look at it very much, do we? I don't know if you did we when you were. Definitely don't, Kathy. When you were younger, were you one of those people who got a mirror out and had? A I look? didn't actually, but I do know people who did, and I don't want to talk about it. Now, <laughs> journalist and author Lynn Enright has written this book with a picture of the vagina on the front. It's called Vagina: A Reeducation, and it's part memoir, part guidebook, sifting through myths and misinformation to empower women with vital knowledge about their own bodies. Now, Roshan, you spoke to Lynn about the book. So 
What did you talk about? Well, we talked a lot about vaginas, um, funnily enough, and vulvas. And and the difference. And the difference between the two and the kind of way that the language is important. But it really looks into everything to do with women's sort of reproductive health as well. And she talks about her own abortion that she had as a young woman. But you know what? This book is just a really practical kind of guide and very informative. And um, yes, it's a feminist book, but I also just think it's really useful because... I think, I mean, you know, I, I don't know about you, but like this idea of front bottom or the different words that we use. Like I have a friend I was telling or Lynn. Or Lady Garden. Yeah, oh, Lady Garden. That's another one. I was telling Lynn that my friend who calls uh, her vagina her Mary. So that's apparently an Irish thing, but I'd never heard of it until my friend says that. And she, she, was talking, she, was talking to her do- she was talking to her daughters about that. I tell, tell her, you've got to stop saying Mary. That's not, you know, it's like, I know, I know. But, you know. I've got a daughter so, called Mary. I think we should stop this now. Um, that all sounds very educational, Roisin. Anyway, I'm looking forward very much to listening to you and Lynn Enright discussing vaginas. Lynn, why did you write a book about the vagina? <laughs> um, let me see. Well, I suppose I had been working at a women's website, The Pool, and while I was working there, I realised that any time we did, we did pieces about vagina-related subjects, by which I mean um, infertility, fertility, miscarriage, abortion, but also smear tests, STIs. Um, There was a great response, and I feel like people were really, really keen to talk about it. So you'd see a great response on Facebook. You'd see a whole load of comments happening underneath the article. um, And it just kind of highlighted to me that there was this uh, desire to talk about these things that were still taboo. And then alongside that, there was the repeal movement and the Me Too movement. And I started to think that actually those movements were connected to the fact that women didn't know enough about their own bodies. And when we were talking about issues like power and consent, we needed to also go right back to the basics and talk about women's bodies, women's pleasures, women's orgasms, women's pain. Um, And it started to feel like it was all connected and I just thought it was important to address it. Um, there's a really interesting statistic, it's a, it's a British st- statistic but I'm sure it applies here as well where um, 44% of women were unable to identify the vagina mm. and 60% didn't know what the vulva was mm. either. I mean those I mean it's kind of amazing really mm-hmm. because like in a way we think that feminism and, and all these things that we're, to- we're much more open we're talking a lot more about everything and yet kind of the facts which is what this book is all about and why it's so brilliant we'll talk about that is that it's we need the facts before we can really get into anything else yeah I mean the basic information is kept from women and and if you think about you know that there's this um, decrease in the number of women going for smears um, there's an orgasm gap in which straight men have significantly more orgasms than straight women and and if you think about all of that in the context of women literally not being able to point out their own vagina and their own vulva on a diagram, it makes sense. Um, And, you know, actually it has like really far-reaching consequences from uh, women experiencing pain during sex that they pass off as normal, uh, from, you know, women not going to the doctor when they have, uh, you know, problems uh, and, and medical issues. So... Yeah, I think it was just really necessary to go back to the basics and to address the fact that, like you say, half of women, roughly, don't know 
what their vagina is on a yeah. diagram. Now, I'm one of those people who misnames the vagina. I tell my daughters about their vagina. Now, I don't say front bottom, so that's a development, <laughs> which, which I know there has been in the past. Or my other friend has always grown up calling it her Mary. I don't know if you've heard that one, Lynn. Mary, hadn't heard yeah. that. But yeah. there are these names and we kind of euphemisms for, you know, anatomical parts of our, our, our body. So mm-hmm. I'm going to start um, telling them, sorry, sorry, girls, I told you that's a vagina. That's actually inside. You can't see the vagina. This is the vulva. But interestingly, a couple of weeks ago, this very subject, very timely, came up on Twitter because, will you tell the story about, there was an article in The Guardian, um, me and my vulva, a hundred women talk about about their, yeah, their vulva. About their vulvas, yeah. And a man um, called Paul Bullen, I think, uh, an editor, writer and academic apparently in the US, waded in and said, I think you'll find that's the vagina. Um, at which point, you know, Twitter sort of exploded with women very eager to tell him that, no, that is the vulva, not the vagina. And he said, well, you know, I'm using it the way the way most people use it, which, you know, in some respects, he has a point. Probably the majority of people say vagina when they mean vulva. And before I started writing this book, I said vagina, not vulva. And do you I do, say vulva now? I do, but I sort of, I do say vulva, but I feel like ever so slightly self-conscious that I'm kind of, you know, being quite proper about things. Uh, it's quite formal. Yeah. Which is silly though, because it's just the fact, isn't it's, it? It's, it's like, just what it's called. Yeah. And I used to think that there was no, that there was nothing wrong with calling a vulva vagina. But then I started to read more about it and think more about it. And I did realise that, you know, by calling everything a vagina we're forgetting about or not naming and not acknowledging the clitoris and the labia and all these really integral important parts and I think that if you call everything a vagina it's sort of as though it's it's a place where you can deliver a baby and it's a place where you can have heterosexual penis and vagina sex and it's kind of for those two things but actually the vulva has you know the clitoris which is how most women reach orgasm through you know simulation of the clitoris it has the labia and so I think that we've sort of we skip over those bits when we call it the vagina speaking of skipping over just can we just give a little you have your book is called vagina a re-education can you give us a little little education piece here vulva vagina because I think there are going to be some people listening who might not actually know the difference yeah so the vagina is the muscular tube which runs from the vaginal opening right up to the cervix and then the vulva is is kind of everything so it's the pubic mound it's the clitoris it's the inner and outer labia it's the urethral opening the vaginal opening and the vestibule which is kind of the area underneath which where the urethral and vaginal well, I have never even heard of the vestibule <laughs> until this very until your book so that's yeah. I mean brilliant that you're giving bringing these things to light yeah I mean it is really striking that you know, neither had I, you know, so I think that, you know, so many women just just grow up, uh, reach adulthood, go through, you know, like have sex, have a miscarriage, have a baby and still don't know the correct terms, which does have consequences. My sister will be delighted listening to this because she has two girls and she tells them they're vulva. You hear them going around like they're quite young. Mommy, my vulva. Sort like <laughs> Well, but it's funny how vagina's bad enough. Vulva seems to be worse in mm. our heads of words to use. I think it's just because mm. it's not commonly used. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like you say, because it's... Well, well, the vulva contains all those things 
to do with sexual pleasure. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that's another reason. Would you say there's a theory there about that's why you you have a whole chapter about how the clitoris is kind of ignored. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Yeah, 100 percent. So basically, that was another big realisation as I was writing this book. And, you know, it's it's sort of embarrassing that I, I didn't know it before. But um, because the information has been around and it's been around for decades in its sort of uh, the, the the full extent has been known. But for centuries, the sort of basic outline has been known that the clitoris is, yes, the visible head, but also extends deep inside the body, um, you know, for inches inside the body. And um, I did not know that until I started to write this book. And that information has just not been passed down to women. You know, in a school diagram, you know, a diagram in a textbook, you you probably don't even see. I don't think I ever saw um, the clitoris, the the you know the visible bit of the clitoris, let alone the the internal extent of the clitoris. Um, and we just sort of you know it, Naomi Wolf made the point in her book um, Vagina that it she's she's also a vagina expert that um, it, it's kind of a disappearing act and you know it kind of comes into focus and then and then it's forgotten again. And that has happened at various stages throughout history regarding the clitoris. Um, And I think it it 100% has to do with the fact that it is a site of women's pleasure and orgasm and that it's a place that doesn't necessarily, I mean, doesn't at all need a penis to, to... to reach that right so I think it means that you know people think that it's not it's not that important then which brings us nicely on to masturbation Mm. uh, because you don't need anything anybody else to Mm. enjoy sexual pleasure like that so was it important to to bring that into the book as well and do you think that still I mean Callum Moran has been great because in her her book she she talks about her furious masturbation Mm. when she's younger but um, but it's still a kind of a thing we don't really talk about yeah I think so and I think uh, I was speaking to a lot of women about the sex education they had received and a lot of them, you know, were just, I think, quite angry almost that they had not been taught anything about their own body and that actually, you know, really most sex starts with, you know, well, sex starts with a person and an individual and you need to sort of figure that out for yourself and then learn to share it with a partner and so on. Um, But Girls are, aren't told that, and they weren't told that when I was growing up, certainly. But I don't think that it's got, we've, we've you know, even 20 years later that girls are being told. This idea that sex is something that happens to you. Yeah. Like that at you and on you. Yeah. But actually, like you say, it's, it's a very personal thing that can start way before any other partners come on the scene. And that that is also your sexual relationship with yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that thing about sexual joy, isn't it? It's just not part of sex education. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all about... You know, a lot of it is very negative. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is how to stop, not get pregnant, mm-hmm. how to da, 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 But like to actually enjoy yourself, enjoy your body, mm-hmm. it seems to be still kind of a taboo thing. And I don't think it's just a Catholic hangover. I think it's no. widespread. That was really interesting for me to, to start to research sex education in the UK and beyond because I live in the UK now and I presumed like, okay, these guys, they're going to be, you know, light years ahead of ahead of us that I grew up in Ireland. I went to a Catholic school. You know, the sex education was pretty dire, but I thought that the situation would be different in the UK and it's not. And the taboos are, you know, they're about Catholicism, but they're also just about in, in England. I think that there's a, 
a sense of like, oh, Britishness, and we don't really talk about that. And, you know, each country in America, then it's the, the sort of Christian right. And each country finds a way of, of, of making this taboo, besides probably, as far as I can tell, uh, the Netherlands and Scandinavia are much, much better. So, yeah, I think girls are just absolutely not not told about that. And I think it's a really good point that you make about it being really negative. And that has really far-reaching consequences. You know, I speak to people and they're women in their 20s and they still feel sort of terrified of pregnancy and terrified of STIs. And they associated sex for years with fear. Mm. Um, and, you know, somebody else told me recently, I was talking to her about uh, what do you wish you'd been told in sex education and she's a woman in her 30s now and she said you know I wish I was told that it 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 can hurt and it might hurt but it doesn't have to hurt um because I think you know women are told or girls are told that it's yeah something that happens to you it, it, it's something you can do to almost like you know facilitate a male orgasm and then you know you come you come out into adulthood uh not realizing that it's supposed to be good for you as well mm. there's one interesting bit in your book where i think some of you are getting some some kind of sex education and somebody suggested to look at your vulva mm. with a hand mirror mm. and of course everyone in the class kind of goes oh my god oh no way mm. but you went home and did it <laughs> tell us about that i felt quite sorry for you yeah i still really remember uh remember that moment and yeah, I guess, you know, and I think because it had been so taboo, because I do see kids now growing up calling it the vagina and the vulva. And, you know, I, I went, I, I see my friend's kids and one one little girl in particular is quite fascinated, I have to say, by her own vagina and vulva. And she, she does know it. But I was kind of around 11 or 12 when I got this information by, I think it was like a, a Tampax nurse came to the school and suggested that this might be a useful thing for us to do. And so I looked and I was just sort of overwhelmed by everything, you know, by all this, by the knowledge, by the kind of like eroticism of the whole thing. Um, and that was it. That was I didn't I didn't make a regular habit of it. I think. Yeah, like you, you you saw it and it was sort of an arousing experience when yeah. you looked at your own vulva. Yeah. But you kind of were shocked by that that was something to be afraid of like there was a signal that oh no this is some weird kind of thing instead of going okay this is something to explore you know immediately so it was yeah no I, I did I find it very um frightening almost you know um and so I didn't really I didn't really look again for for a while <laughs> you, you did get yeah. there eventually yeah um you, you talk it's, it's a great book because it's very factual very practical I mean any woman, I have to say, who picks this book up is going to learn something. Even the most enlightened ones, even much more f people far beyond um, my knowledge, because I, I am not the best with this kind of thing. I've, it's taken me into my 40s to start to be able to really properly engage with it, which is really sad and really kind of worrying, you know, because, I mean, I see, I'd be seen as someone quite out there, but there's still that prudishness comes in with oh. all these things. But you do weave in your own stories and you talk about, well, first of all, you talk about um, an abortion you had and then fertility problems you had mm. as well. But you write about it in a very kind of matter of fact way, mm. because, again, like there are things that happen to a lot of women. So you're not dramatizing it to, you know, to a big degree, which is it's very interesting. But why it was important for you to write about those things, I suppose, in the context of the yeah. vagina. Yeah, absolutely. It did feel like it's all connected and that um, when we re-educate ourselves about our vaginas, we also need to re-educate ourselves about the fact that these situations are really common. And I think that they're part of, you know, part of a woman's 
life in in terms of her health and sexuality and uh, and that those two things that they're not conflicting they're just you know something that people can experience in relation to their gynecological health um and i think you know we still haven't quite got to the stage where we do uh, treat abortion uh, as a sort of you know medical procedure um away from judgment and sort of societal takes on it. So I did think it was important to discuss that. And I I did think it was important to discuss the fertility stuff because it was really interesting when, um, like, I'm 35 and uh, around, you know, in the last four to five years, a lot of my friends have started to have kids. And before you have kids, you start to, you know, try for kids. And for a lot of them, it was a really strange and horrible experience and this whole thing of you know TTC which is trying to conceive and people just thought because you know if you grow up uh, you had a couple of rudimentary sex education classes so you grow up thinking that as soon as you have unprotected sex you're going to get pregnant and so kind of month number one you've done it and you're just waiting for the pregnancy and of course for most people it doesn't happen in month number one and it can take a year two years you can discover that there are fertility issues and that was a really painful process for so many of the women and couples that I know and so I just thought that we need to talk about that you know whenever I see I guess this book is so much of it is about whenever I see something that is painful for people I think is it painful, is it extra painful because there's a taboo around it or because it's something that's unspoken? And I think a lot of the time that's true and that's something that I wanted to address. And so it just felt to me that it was necessary to touch on fertility and the sort of full fullness of fertility, which does include um, getting pregnant when, when you don't want to, not being able to get pregnant when you do want to, because I think those are things that are incredibly common. And how are you with that now? And was it difficult to kind of put all that out? Because it's so intimate and personal and painful. Yeah, I mean, it is. It is. I mean, it's very strange writing a book, you know, because you just do it on your own. And, you know, you've, it, it feels quite private. And these are thoughts that you have yourself. And then, of course, yeah, you put it out there and you kind of need to people ask you questions about it and you have to talk about it. And that's I think that's harder for me writing it doesn't feel difficult but talking about it does and also I suppose knowing that other people uh, are reading it but I suppose I just really hope that if somebody's going through a similar thing that they'll find it useful or helpful or comforting. You talk about menopause and periods as well again two things that we're talking more about periods lately I think and the menopause but still again a lot of misinformation and a lot of people not really wanting to engage with these two very fundamental parts of being a woman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you, you've put them in there. Was there anything you learned or any aspects of it that you felt yeah, exercised about? I mean, the menopause in particular, because it's not something I've experienced yet, was really eye-opening. You know, I realised that I'd never really talked to my mother about it until I started doing this book. And, you know, it's a really significant event and it, it's horrible in lots of ways for a lot of people, not for everybody, but for a lot of people. And to think that women are expected to just kind of muddle through that. And if if it is ever discussed, it's jokey. And 
you know, I think that obviously we all know that we can laugh about all this stuff. I think it's amazing when, you know, I love the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and she is just like, she's just the best at vagina jokes. There's a really funny episode recently where it's um, it's kind of a pastiche of Cats, the musical, um, and she has bacterial vaginosis. I was vaginosis. watching it last night, it's so funny. It is just so good. And so, yeah, these there's loads of jokes to make about vaginas and, and all of this. But I think often the menopause jokes haven't really been on women's terms and it's all like, oh, hot flushes, how hilarious. But actually women can find them really horrible and strange. And it can be really if you work in a workplace where there's no understanding of that and suddenly, you know, you're you're sweating and you can't open the window because architects who designed the building didn't think that, you know, a woman might need to open the window, uh, you know, in her 40s and 50s. Um so I think it was quite interesting to realise that menopause is something we we just we haven't quite got there in terms of designing workplaces, in terms of discussing it. And I think, you know, there's a lot of mistruths and again an education that needs to happen because, you know, hormone replacement therapy and HRT, that was kind of I think for a lot of people, they've been given misinformation because there were so many scare stories about it and people still feel nervous Um even though now, you know, it, it has the, the latest studies indicate that it's safe. But I can understand why people still feel nervous. The periods chapter is called periods and what makes them so awful. Mm. So uh, <laughs> I think, mm. yeah, I mean, you're, you're laying it out there because, I mean, it is like a tyranny, isn't it? Of Yeah. And I mean, I, I just had my period last week <laughs> and it was horrible. Um, and <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I think sometimes it feels almost shocking how awful periods are and that we haven't quite, like, figured out how to make them less awful. And, you know, obviously uh, hormonal contraception can help with that. But at the moment, because I'm in this kind of fertility thing, I can't take that. I haven't been able to take hormonal contraception for the past couple of years because I've been thinking about having a baby. So I have this, like, hellish period every month. And, you know, for two days, it's really really intense pain and intense bleeding and I and that's that's awful and then on top of that is the sense that you know we again in workplaces um uh, that's not recognized the fact that it's expensive to to buy sanitary towels and that you know they're not they're not free and they are taxed and that you know uh, women who are less well off than I am uh, might really struggle to afford them. Um, and so I think there's a basic biological awfulness um, and then there's a whole other layer of awfulness. Um, and that's that's something we can we can do something about. Yeah, I mean, I'm getting ready to tell my children who are going on 10 about this part of their lives. And uh, I have to say, I'm trying to find a positive spin mm. on it. Have you got any help from me? Because mm, I don't like, know. Uh, they start to realise what's the story and they're talking, they're, they're saying, Mom, that's that's ter- that's terrible. That's mm. disgusting. And I, I'm going, no, no, it's all part of being a woman. It's a normal part of life. But it is, like, it is awful. Mm. But how do you, I mean, I feel like I don't, I don't want to kind of I put suppose, it quite in those terms. Yeah, I suppose if there's like an openness and, you know, that does help. Yeah. And that, you know. That's true. That's because a lot of 
lovely just way. didn't have that. Yeah. You know, and it was a kind of a secret thing mm. and this visitor and this, these, mm. all these euphemisms mm. again. It is interesting how women's bodily functions and women's body parts are cloaked in so many different um, makey-uppy words, aren't mm. they? Yeah, that's a really good point. I haven't thought about that really, but the visitor and Aunt Flo and all that kind of madness and you know and it's just like Aunt Flo it's like a benevolent like old lady (laughs) actually it's rivers of blood you know yeah she's not nice Aunt Flo Um, you also touch on things like FGM uh, in the book as well Mm -hmm. I mean there's because there's so much in this and and the the vagina the vulva is used as a weapon Mm. in so many ways against women Mm. and and FGM is something like there's a lot more activism going on about but it's still such a barbaric practice that's affecting so many girls all over the world and even in Britain and who knows in Ireland too we just don't really know a lot of the time yeah no I I, I was saying to somebody yesterday you know that I think we've made huge strides and that's true you know this book is coming out at a time when we're having much more energized conversations about period poverty and about you know the orgasm gap and that's in magazines you know at the moment and there's a lot of chat uh, about our vaginas and vulvas but you know when FGM is taking place Anywhere in the world, that means we still have more work to do um, and more work to support women who are fighting that um, in 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 Africa, in the UK, in Ireland, um, because, you know, it's, it's, it is horrific and it's barbaric. And I think our squeamishness about naming the clitoris ha- has meant that we sort of can can overlook the the horrificness of the act. Mm. You have a chapter at the end called Does My Vagina Define Me? Mm. What did you decide? Yeah, so basically it was quite interesting, you know, that I'd written this whole book about genitals. And then at the same time, you know, I have to say, I don't think genitals do define us and that you can, you know, if we recognize and support the rights of trans people, we recognize that actually we're not defined by our genitals. And I just felt that it was important to explore that and to acknowledge that. Um, But so I suppose we're just all living within a structure, really, that is uh, gendered and uh, a patriarchy, really. Um, So I, I suppose I think my genitals do not define me and my vagina does not define me um, but we all need to get to a place where where there's more equality regardless of regardless of our genitals so tell me why people should read your book Lynn um, well I think everybody will will learn something male or female um, or non-binary and that has been something that has come up you know people saying oh, I want my husband to read this or my brother and and some men you know saying to me uh, a friend said you know I really want to read it because I have a sister and she had her period and she was in so much pain and I didn't really realise that that could happen and so he wants to read it to try and understand what happens to the women in his life so I think you know Definitely younger women is probably who I had in mind as I wrote it. So kind of late teens, throughout 20s and 30s. But actually, the more people read it, the more they say to me, I think I think everybody should read it. <laughs> Brilliant. And I, there's a lovely quote from Scarlett Curtis on it, who's um, a very excellent young feminist. And, and she says, beautiful, well-written and fascinating. For the first time, I feel like I properly understand my vagina. <laughs> and I think that's what this book does. And well done for doing it. There's a lovely illustration on the front, I suppose, of a, basically of a 
vagina vagina vulva yeah. yes and I know it's a vulva yeah. now that I look at it <laughs> but thank you very much Lynn for coming in it's a fascinating book and really important and like I said at the beginning very practical very pragmatic and people will learn lots and uh, yeah knowledge is power as absolutely said. thank you and that's it for today. Thanks to Lynn Enright and Roisin Ingle for that illuminating conversation and a reminder that the book Vagina, a re-education is available in all good bookshops now. We are up bright and early tomorrow, Friday morning, to record a very special episode in front of a huge crowd. I mean, it really is huge. Thousands. As part of Accenture's International Women's Day event at the National Convention Centre in Dublin. We are not at all nervous about that. Truly. (laughs) Stay tuned for that International Women's Day episode on Monday. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast apps. If you do want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or you can email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. Also, we do enjoy a bit of praise from time to time. So if you like what we do, then please do head along to iTunes and give us a review. The podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Until next time, thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.